I think probably all of us in some way would agree or be able to touch some way that, um, that there's a kind of quality of searching or seeking in our lives that that is some at least aspect of uh, what would bring us to spend time on retreat here at the Forest Refuge, maybe even the primary motivation behind uh, the intention that would lead us to come here, spend time on retreat, engage with the practice as we do. And, uh, and we might think of this, this movement of heart, this uh, searching, seeking movement of the heart and mind as, um, as a, an aspect of the energy that uh, sustains and supports our practice through all of the uh, ups and downs and all of the movement that is involved in that. Born of some deep kind of desire or longing for something that we we might, each of us, name or think of, speak of in different ways, but something in terms of sense of happiness, peace, ease, a movement towards this. And the spiritual life often is spoken about, metaphorically perhaps, as a kind of journey. And this is true uh, certainly in, in the Theravada, in the Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist tradition and other traditions, other great traditions and sometimes it's, it's, the image is used as likened to a journey home and the Buddha's realization or the, the uh, realization of awakening is, is likened to reaching one's true home. This kind of sense or feeling of reaching one's true home. And, and if we think about what that might be, how the feeling of reaching one's true home there are connotations, I think, of, of a place or a, an, an experience or mm, some, something that, that speaks to the qualities of ease and rest, of deep kind of relaxation where the mind and the body, the heart really deeply relax. And you know, it's as though we walk in the door there and there's a sigh of relief a release, a letting go, or deep relaxation. And so if we use this metaphor, if this is in some way meaningful, and we, we think of this spiritual life as this journey and see ourselves as walking a path, moving along in some kind of journey, we can see it as leading to a deep kind of relaxation, peace, freedom. And this can be a kind of a useful and apt kind of image, but we have to be careful not to hold, hold this kind of metaphor too literally because it's not that we go somewhere or get something we don't already have. We have to be careful how we hold this. There's this sense of movement, of possibility. But we, we don't get somewhere new. We end up where we started. But our understanding is what changes in this journey. And this may seem very obvious, but it's an important point to, I think, reflect on, to bear in mind, because um, these kinds of images can lead to a certain way we, we hold this journey that may not be so useful. 
I think for many of us, maybe most of us, if we relate to the realization of Nibbana at all, if that has any meaning for us at all, we often see it as something far away from us, as, as maybe sort of high, remote, certainly outside the realm of our, our what well, we may maybe hold it as outside or beyond the realm of what we really think is possible for us, beyond anything we might really realistically aspire to realize. Often people express this this feeling. And, and there may be the sense of some vague kind of undefined, unknowable sort of goal that occasionally gets talked about, pointed to. And, and we're supposed to be able to get there if we work hard enough and if we spend enough time in meditation, you know, like some kind of reward we might obtain or, or something like that. Maybe possible for special beings or those who've undertaken the life of a nun or monk or maybe something that happened in the old days. Sometimes I think this way of, of thinking, this way of holding the potential of the path, this possibility of realization is compounded by limitations of language, certainly when we use the word Nibbana and attempts to speak about that. It's very difficult because on an essential level, we're trying to define or speak about something that's impossible to define. And so the best one can ever do is to try to point at it either by saying what it isn't, which is often the kind of language that we find in in the teachings, or allude to certain qualities in often very vague, sometimes poetic kinds of ways. And we can get a sense for, for this difficulty in trying to describe what is not really describable when we think about just how difficult it is to say anything meaningful about your experience in meditation to someone who has never done any meditation at all, has no connection to that. It's very difficult to describe the experience of paying attention to the body and mind in the way we do in meditation to someone who who just has no idea what that's about. You know, it's hard enough to talk about the, the subtlety and nuance of our internal experience to someone who really knows what we're talking about, you know, has been there themselves, that's hard enough let alone to someone who has no idea what you're pointing at. Or let's say we were to attempt to describe the experience of eating a mango to someone who's never done that, no experience of it. And and we could go on and on about the qualities of a mango and the, the color and texture and smell and taste and the juiciness and all of the rest and how delicious we think they are if we like them, whatever. But until someone actually tries one, they're never gonna have any idea what it really is like to eat a mango. Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. 
So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence nor come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, and is endless. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. There are many such beautiful descriptions one finds in the teachings. And it sounds so beautiful, an island which you cannot go beyond, a place of non-attachment, non-possession that does not age, neither comes into nor passes out of existence. But then if we, if we think of it at all, it leads us to hold the idea of, of Nibbana, this word this, that is used to describe this understanding, this realization in some vague way. It's out there somewhere. We don't have it now, certainly. That's obvious to us. But maybe we could get it someday, although we're not in any way sure at all what it might be. Maybe it's some place or stay state we might get to eventually, some beautiful island like this poetic description. And sometimes these kinds of poetic allusions and words can be beautiful and may inspire us. You know, they point to something and we, we feel some sense of, that, of possibility hearing these words. Or it may be discouraging. It's like, wow, okay, I have no idea, but doesn't sound like anything I could possibly ever come to understand in any real way. But these kinds of descriptions, while they may at times be inspiring to us, the way beautiful poetry can be, they can also, um, in a way, lead us to looking in the wrong direction or in the wrong way, the wrong place. For, for this understanding to be meaningful. And if we're looking in the wrong way, in the wrong place, we're not likely to find what we're looking for. And this is, I think, a really important point for us to bear in mind in our practice because our conditioning is very, very strong to look outside ourselves for both the source of our struggles and suffering in life and the solution to them. And it encourages us to see freedom awakening Nibbana if, if we see it at all as this far off possibility and attainment in some future state of grace that might come. But we set off looking for it outside of ourselves, outside of our moment to moment experience. See it as far beyond that. I was recently given the gift of a book. It's a biography and a collection of teachings by a, Thai, a monk in the Thai forest tradition named Ajahn Panyavado. 
And he, he may have been, at least in my understanding, he is, if not the first in modern times, one of the very first uh, Westerners who went to uh, Thailand and trained in the Thai forest tradition. And uh, he was a disciple of a very famous monk named Ajahn Mahabua, some of you may have heard of. I had the occasion to actually meet both of Ajahn Mahabua and Ajahn Panyavado one year when I was spending some time practicing in Thailand and they came to the, the center where I was. Uh, Ajahn Mahabua came more than once actually. And Ajahn Panyavado stayed there for a time in residence and we were able to go and meet with him and talk about our practice and ask questions. And Ajahn Mahabua is widely held to be a fully enlightened being. And I think he's still alive, and if he is, he's over 100, because when I met him 12 or more years ago, he was 92. <laughs> and I think I would have heard if he had if he'd passed away, but it's possible I didn't. Ajahn Panyavado is no longer alive. He died just a couple of years after I had the occasion to spend a bit of time in his company there. And I hadn't thought of him in years, but receiving this book and seeing the pictures really brought this time back to me, sitting there in the simple hut in, in Northeast Thailand. He ordained, Ajahn Panyavado actually took robes initially the year I was born. <laughs> I just discovered that reading this book in 1955. And in, this, in one sec part of the book, he said this, I'd say that Nibbana is already there in everybody and everybody knows it, but they don't recognize it. Intuitively, we know there is something better than this world, but we don't know what it is. And so we search for it. And because we have an array of senses to work with, we tend to focus out in the direction of the senses, looking there for true happiness. Of course, that's searching in the wrong direction. And of course, we, we tend to turn in this way. You know, our conditioning is very strong. And, and mostly we don't, we certainly aren't offered much that would lead us to look in a different way. We don't really know anywhere else to look. And even if we've been practicing for a long time, this pull to the senses and the objects of them is so strong. We get caught and pulled into that. But when we look in this way, when we look outwards into the senses, the objects of the senses, the result can often be a kind of disappointment and frustration because we wind up asking these things, the objects of sense contact, to be capable of providing this deep happiness or lasting uh, satisfaction. But they're not reliable as sources for that. And, and it sets us up for suffering. And then what happens is we, we find that we are struggling or suffering and we tend to blame the world and, and conditions. And we, we point around here and there to fix the blame for it. But, but the world isn't to blame. It's not the fault of sense contacts and the things that 
come to us this way. It's just doing its thing. That's just an on, unlaw, that's just a lawful unfolding. Causes and conditions that arise and pass, come together, disperse, disband lawfully. But we're just asking it to be capable of something which it isn't ultimately never could be capable of. And, and this grasping of, at worldly conditions, at transient experiences, it's a futile endeavor. We do it in this hope that somehow this will bring us to happiness, peace, freedom. Again, a, a little bit more from Ajahn Panyavado. He said, the ultimate goal, Nibbana, is beyond the world, beyond attachment. The nature of Nibbana is emptiness. When our consciousness is rooted in the world, however, however, we cannot become aware of emptiness. We have no means to know what it is. Instead, we hold tightly to perceptions of me and mind. And so the world we live in is bound by artificial conditions and attached to a world of conditioned reality. Now we have to be careful here, I think, because at the very same time, it is precisely this world of conditioned reality that we engage with. And this is what leads us to that which is beyond the conditioned world. It's, it's the, it is the pathway. We have to start there. We don't start at emptiness and the unconditioned. But this process is a training and it's a training that radically transforms the way we look at conditioned reality. And a part of this is uh, this process of starting to see and let go of our attachments to our perceptions and our fixed ideas about the nature of reality and who and what we believe ourselves to be. So I'd like to talk about uh, some ways that we might think about this couple of ways in particular that are really very closely related. They're kind of two sides of the same thing in a sense. So if we approach this meditative practice, whatever meditative practices we might do in a skillful way, we'll see that they are this process of a a kind of training, training and encouraging this quality of mindful awareness this simple capacity that we all have that's natural, that's not a big deal in a certain way, to be aware, to be awake in the moment. Right now, check it out. There is awareness. It's there. It's not something you have to struggle to find. Yes, it's not always there. But this simple simple capacity is there for all of us, but possible in any moment. And so we, um, through this, through connecting with our ongoing experience, experience with mindful awareness, we begin to really know the truth of how things really are in a deep kind of way. And we also begin to start to really trust this capacity of awareness in the moment, more than the passing show of changing phenomena. We see that's more trustworthy. 
than any thing that is in of the nature to arise and pass away. And so we learn to recognize things as they are and without the need to judge them. And this allows us to start seeing through patterns of habitual reactivity through what we would say is our conditioning, conditioned responses in regard to pleasant and unpleasant, what we like and don't like and so forth. And this leads to this letting go of this possible release of the need to take it all personally, to hold it in terms of some form of a kind of ownership of it, claiming it as me, as mine, as who I am, as defining me in some way. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. The metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so very powerful because it points to the principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple, very direct, and you can't conceive it. You just have to trust it. You have to trust this simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake. The way of mindfulness is the way of recognizing conditions just as they are. We simply recognize and acknowledge their presence without blaming them or judging them or criticizing them or praising them. We allow them to be, the positive and the negative both. And as we trust in this way of mindfulness more and more, we begin to realize the reality of the island that you cannot go beyond. So this possibility of settling into a deep trust of this awareness, this possibility of wakefulness in the moment. And we train our focus to go more to the universal aspects of all conditioned phenomena, of all that that arises, beginning with opening to and and starting to really um, deeply touch the, the truth of impermanence. You know, in meditation, we meet the flow of life as it is, just as it is, trusting this ability to be aware and awake, bringing mindfulness to whatever is happening, and training ourselves to be aware of things as they are, recognizing them, letting go, hopefully, of any need to judge either them or ourselves in relation to them, And we start to see when we connect in this way that whatever is of the nature to arise also ceases. This is an essential aspect of anything that arises in the conditioned realm. We see that it's impermanent, subject to change. It's not substantial in a certain sense because of this, and it's not controllable. It's the unfolding of natural processes. And seeing in this this way inclines the mind and heart to this kind of letting go. In one place in the teachings, the Buddha was asked to summarize his teaching in one, just give me a one-liner, Bhante, that sums it all up. You know, and there's volumes and volumes of teachings, (laughs) right? I don't want to read all the suttas, just give me one sentence. And the Buddha said he could do this. 
He replied, Sabbe Dhamma Nalang Abhinivasaya in Pali. It's usually translated as nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And then he emphasized the power of this simple teaching by saying, whoever had heard this core phrase had heard all of the teachings. Whoever had put it into practice had practiced all of the teachings. Whoever had realized the fruits of practicing in this way had realized all possible fruits of the path. That's pretty strong. That's a powerful statement to make. Now the key to this simple statement are the words, nothing whatsoever. Right? He, he was not ambiguous in this. <laughs> he didn't say, well, th- this is okay, cling to this or that. He said, nothing whatever, nothing whatsoever. And we could s- substitute other ways uh, to, uh, for the words clung to. We could say identified with or attached to, held on to. But the basic understanding there is clear. Don't cling to anything. Hold on to nothing whatsoever. Or we could phrase it, let go of everything. Ajahn Chah, as he was so um, capable of doing, put this understanding very, very simply. He said in this very famous quotation, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. In the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the the single most complete set of meditation instructions in the entire Pali Canon, it's It's uh, one of the most revered teachings in the Theravada tradition. And there's a, it goes through the four establishments or foundations of mindfulness, of body, feelings, um, mind, and, and what are some called mind objects, dhammas, you could say patterns of experience. And I won't go, I'm not gonna go into it and a description of this teaching, but in this teaching, at the end of each section of instructions, there's a, a kind of refrain that is, is repeated all over, throughout the sutta, it's repeated 13 times at the end of, of each place. It's, so, so there was some, the, the Buddha wanted to emphasize something in here. And the last line of this refrain is, one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. One abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. And I think that I always, I've heard this a lot, I've tended to relate to this as sort of, this is the description of the enlightened mind. This is, you know, tacked on there to say, you know, if you do this right, this is the, this is what you're, then one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. But this whole sutta is a teaching of, of a practice. It's an offering of a practice. And, and recently I've started really holding it in a different way. It seems like something has shifted in that way for me as an instruction of a thing to practice. 
that this is a a practice to do. (laughs) And we actually can't practice this. Abiding independently, not clinging. It may not be our permanent state of affairs, (laughs) but it doesn't mean that it's not a possibility and it doesn't mean it's not something we can practice. We can actually practice this. So I'll speak of a couple ways that might lead us to touching into this. It's more of what I've been saying so far, but um, really shifting our focus towards um, seeing impermanence, seeing the impermanent nature of phenomena, letting our focus go more to the arising and passing aspect of things more that than the details of what it is that's arising and passing. It's not that these are separable, but it's a, it's a case of where we put our attention, you could say, because everything that we can experience is of the nature to change, to arise and pass. There is this state of flux that's constantly part of our experience of body, mind, everything that we can know through the senses. Most of the time we get pulled out and caught in the, de- in the details of that, in the world of, of sights and sounds and sensations. All that we think and feel about what we are aware of, what it means about me. And we fall into a kind of fascination with it much of the time and lose sight of this more... Um, universal quality, this um, changing ephemeral nature of it all because we're so fascinated with what it is. And, And this leads to attributing a kind of solidity or reality to it that it doesn't actually have. And then there just seem to be so many issues there, so much that we have to deal with and do something about. This is a, from a teacher, Upasaka Ki Nanayon, in a book called Pure and Simple. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any essence. Everything just disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's really only arising, remaining, and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, and passing away. Like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. Now, this isn't to deny the truth of our inner world and and their experience there. But we often get so caught up in it, in the content of it, that we we don't notice this flow of change, that it's all anicca, not permanent. But if we take a kind of like, it's almost like sort of a half step back in a certain way, or a kind of softer gaze. It's like if one were sitting by a stream, we can look at all the stuff there, all the bubbles and 
sticks and leaves and things that are carried along by it and, and all the things we might see down in the water. And we can also have a more relaxed gaze and, and really just notice this, the flow of it. And sometimes this is really, this, the shift of how we're seeing can really um, change the way we relate to it all, to all of that's flowing by there. If we relax into the flow of change in this way, we may find that there's an independent abiding that is a possibility in the moment, right here and now in the moment. And that it actually, we can just look simply at it at the present moment with this kind of softer gaze as it arises and passes away right there and just let it go, let it be. Not hold on to any of it. So continuing from Upasaka Ki Nanayan, if you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain and pass away. The past has passed away, the future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, that's when you gain release. So we could see the, the, the clinging of identifying with any aspect of this flow, like trying to hold on to this, this river of changing experience that we can't ever really hold on to. In a way, it's like turning to something that's just flowing through our fingers. It's unstable, it's not reliable. We're asking it to provide stability, reliability, security. And it's not capable of it. It's not that there's something wrong with it. It's just not its nature to be able to do this. A second way we can perhaps start to touch into this possibility of an independent abiding is through resting more and more in the aware mind itself, which I've been talking about this evening in various ways. We actually let mindfulness take the aware mind, the quality of awareness as its object. This last spring, I've mentioned this to some of you, I may even have said something about it here in the hall, but I, I was on retreat at the retreat center across through the woods. I did three retreats in a row, stayed through all three of them. And, and the last one was, uh, the teacher was uh, Sayada Utejaniya, he's a Burmese monk, very, um, he's become quite popular in the West. He's a very, unusual having spent a lot of time practicing with Burmese monks. He's, he's not like, he's not your usual monk. He doesn't come out of the, the, the highly trained uh, school of those who've memorized suttas and done vast amounts of study. He's come out of lay life and um, he has a very particular way of presenting the teachings. But one thing he said that's really stuck with me I've noticed it really stayed with me. At one point he, he said something to this effect. This is not a direct quotation, but he said something like, awareness is your true home. Just stay home where you belong. 
And there was something about that and the way that I held this at that time and that still is, seems to be informing the way I'm looking at practice these days is, is a sense of, of not having to go out and pick anything up in the flow of what's coming by. I'll just stay here. I don't have to pick it up. I can leave it alone. I can let it stay there. I'll just stay here. It's like I tell myself, no, I'll just stay here. It's like sitting by the stream. I don't have to get into it. I try to get anything out of it. And, and in my mind, when, when there is this sense of just, I'll just stay here, just relaxing back in that way, there is that quality of an in- independent abiding in that moment. We get a taste for this possibility. If we rest our attention within the awareness itself, letting things simply arise and pass as is their nature, there is this possibility of this independent abiding, not clinging to anything. There are moments when nothing is grasped at. It's not some faraway thing. There are moments when it's not, we don't have to pick it up. We just let it be. It's not clung to. There's no grasping. There's no laying claim to it as I, as me, as mine. There's just contact and knowing, object and knowing, the flow of that. And there's that, there can be that feeling or sense of an independence there. And as we see this, and at least at times allow things to just do their thing according to nature, arising and passing, and we see them just passing away and, and there's some connection to this, this ceasing in this way, cessation in this way, that I think we touch the piece of that. And it increases our faith and confidence in this sense of non-attachment, of letting go, of non-identification, of non-clinging to anything. The last quotation from Ajahn Sumedho. As we keep reflecting on this, the tendency toward attachment falls away and the reality of non-attachment, of non-grasping, reveals itself in what we could say is Nibbana. If we look at it in this way, Nibbana is here and now. It's not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. It's so very simple, but beyond description. It can't be bestowed or even conveyed, it can only be known by each person for themselves. So I'd like to end this evening um, with one last teaching of the Buddha. This is the Buddha's teaching, very famous teaching to the ascetic Bahia. Bahia was a, a yogi. He was a renunciate by I think by default, perhaps more than by choice because of circumstances. And he was living by the seashore in a certain place and he had somehow, he had fashioned himself clothing made out of bark, tree bark. He was known as Bahia of the bark cloth. And he was living under a tree and he was getting offerings of food and alms and things. And, and he was sincere, but maybe a bit deluded. And he, 
he thought, well, you know, may, am I maybe one of the enlightened ones? And, and it's said that a kindly deva, a kindly, um, you know, um, celestial kind of being came down who had been a relative of his and, and came down and said, hey, Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, you're not doing anything that would even get you there. But Bahia was sincere and he said, well, okay, <laughs> lay it on me, what can I do? I'm paraphrasing the teaching here. <laughs> and so the deva says, there's a Buddha, there's an awakened one. And, and he's now residing in Savati, to the north. He can point you in the right direction. He can give you a teaching. And so Bahia said, okay, I'm going to go and see. So he, he undertook this great journey and went and found the Buddha. And he arrives in Savati and he, he goes and the monks, or some monks are doing walking meditation. He said, where's, where's the, the blessed one, the Buddha? And they said, he's gone on alms round. He's in the village. And Bahia follows uh, along the way and he comes to where the Buddha is on alms round. And he says, teach me, please teach me. And the Buddha says, it's not the time, Bahia, I'm on alms round. And he says, we don't know how long either of us will live. Just give me something, some teaching. And the Buddha says the second time, no, Bahia, I'm on alms round. Mellow out, dude. It's not the time. The third time, Bahia says, please, we don't know what's coming. Give me some, some teaching now. And the, the Buddha, as is often the case, three times is the charm. And he says, okay. And he gave this very short, famous teaching. Okay, Bahia, then you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, Bahia, there is only in the seen, the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to that which is heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there, nor anywhere in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And the story goes that in this moment, Bahia was ripe. And, and in hearing this teaching, he became fully awakened, just in that moment. Became a disciple of the Buddha, thanked the Buddha, and departed. And it's said that shortly thereafter, he was tr run down, gored, and trampled by uh, a mad mother cow who was thought she was protecting her calf, and um, and he was killed just shortly after that. So he had some sense, maybe, of of this. And it's said that the monks asked the Buddha about the about Bahia. That what's his destiny? What, what future birth will Bahia have? And the Buddha said, Bahia was wise and has realized final Nibbana. There will be no more coming to birth for Bahia. And the Buddha is then said to have uttered this verse. Where water, earth, fire and wind, no footing find. There burns not any light, nor shines the sun. The moon sheds not her radiant beams, and the home of darkness is not there. 
when in deep silent hours the holy sage to truth attains, then, free from joy and pain, from form and formless worlds released. So let's have a couple of minutes of quiet and then I'll ring the bell and we'll end the evening with some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.